2: This is Talk Easy, I'm Sam Frigo, so welcome to the show. On this special episode of the podcast i'm joined by writer nathaniel rich as you may remember rich joined us back in 2018 on the heels of his widely read cover story losing earth the decade we almost stopped climate change you may remember that piece in the new york times magazine where he works as a writer at large it was a landmark investigation into our current climate crisis revealing some ugly realities that were, in fact, preventable. Today, we reconvene with Rich around his new book, titled Second Nature, Scenes from a World Remade. It's a deeply reported examination of how we live in a post-natural world, in this expanding conversation around climate change, which, I have to admit, can sometimes be too theoretical and opaque for me to process. Rich has taken a more granular approach. Second Nature focuses on ordinary people like you and I, people working to preserve their humanity in a world of gas leaks and wildfires and global warming, stories of people from Middle America to Europe, a doctor in Japan to a retired sea captain in Northern California, all of whom burden with this lingering question, what does it mean to live in a world of terrible responsibility. As Rich says, the question isn't, how do we return to the world that we've lost? It is instead, what world do we want to create in its place? And while no podcast could possibly supply such answers, Nathaniel and I gave it our best. So thank you for being here and I hope you enjoy. Nathaniel Rich, it's been, gosh, I think it's been about two years since we last spoke on the show. In that time, you've managed to write yet another fantastic book. It's called Second Nature Scenes from a World Remade. So tell me, why this story right now?
1: Thanks. Well, it's good to see you again. The two years and an eternity. I mean, I guess that now we know what the length of you know, eternity is. Um, I started writing the book 10 years ago, I'd say, or, or yeah, about 10 years ago is some of the, the earliest research I did for some of the stories in the book. And, you know, it wasn't a book then. It was, um, it started off as as a few pieces. And over time, I started to see a pattern in what was interesting me and and the kinds of stories I was writing and the kind of people I was writing about started to coalesce. And I realized I was really writing about one big thing over and over again through lots of very different stories, which is our transformed relationship with the natural world and the greater realization that I think is sort of now dawning on certainly on me and more and more people who pay attention to these things that there's, you know, there's no such thing as a natural world anymore, that it's a myth that no longer has any basis in reality, that there's no square inch of land or atmosphere for that matter, that human beings haven't completely reconfigured through our activities whether intentionally or accidentally and and with that realization comes a lot of questions about you know so what do we make of how we should live and the kinds of choices we make for the future and and it it forces us into a, a totally new you know terrain not you know pun not intended but you know psychological terrain that we're on this man-made world And so how are we going to use these powers that we've so far used destructively or ignorantly to improve our situation? Um, And so the the stories I was drawn to are people who are, to varying degrees, coming to this realization and grappling with what this disillusionment does to their own personal lives and and, uh, their own futures. And um, they all come up with their own responses.
2: Before we get into those personal stories... I wanted a quote from the introduction of your book. You write, because of the damage we can do to an overall habitat, we tend to think of ourselves as somehow being unnatural and outside of nature. But we are an integral part of nature and we can also do great good.
1: Yeah, I mean, for most of history, of human history, history of civilization and even pre-civilization, uh, the natural world has been completely terrifying to human beings, with you know, with good reason. I mean, you think of people living in caves for thousands of of years, or in forests or jungles. The idea of that, even to a, someone <laughs> in civilized society in 2021, is 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 already terrifying. So it makes sense that that people were afraid that you know, anytime someone leaves the the cave or the the fire they could get mauled to death or catch some horrible disease or fall off a cliff. And so that primal fear was ingrained in in our history and it's there very profoundly in the Bible where the wilderness is a kind of catch-all term for evil and unknown and temptation. And it really continues up until the industrial age. Um when for the first time, you know, we we still fear nature but we Start to lose some respect for it because our technological powers increase so dramatically that we increasingly have the ability to control our, you know, our environment quite rigorously. And the final chapter is is really comes just in the last century or so with the emergence of you know what you could call environmentalism or, or you know conservationism, which is the idea that we've done great damage um, that by subjugating the natural world to, to fit our desires and our specifications that we've undermined some of the, the most basic natural processes on the planet that are responsible for habitability. And that if we don't change our ways, you know, that we're going to face great destruction. And of course, that line of thought, you know, well predates concerns of climate change, but now you see it rising to this, this even higher pitch of global anxiety. And so, what I'm writing about in, in Second Nature is is this uh, new sense that well, what if we use some of this our technological powers to improve our lot and to improve the lot of all living things on the planet? And there are stories about people, especially the latter part of the book, are stories about people who are trying to do that and yet have to contest with their own extreme, you know, hubris and vanity and and flaws. And that's what's very interesting to me, particularly, is the great desire to do good and our great capacity for self-delusion and for <laughs> screwing everything up. And so uh, many of the stories sort of fall in that, that tension line of, you know, we want to do something, we want to change this relationship, but are we doomed to just failing over and over again? You know, we're becoming aware that there's nothing natural any, a- anymore, And that's a deeply unsettling idea and it's hard to wrap one's mind around it. And so we're already, you know, people worry about sort of have these dystopian fantasies of a, people reshaping the planet and, and making everything um, into this sort of science fiction nightmare scape, But, but to a certain extent, we're already there. And so then the question becomes, you know, how do we adjust to it? And I think a lot of us experience this in our daily lives in different ways. You know, we interact, we brush up against the eeriness of this, of this new realm. I mean, to take a few examples, just from recent news headlines, like there's they just announced that they, they cloned for the first time this black-footed ferret. They're trying to, to save the species from going extinct, and they've cloned a ferret from 1988 that died in 1988. They've recloned it in an effort to increase the genetic diversity of the species. And you see front-page headlines with um, scientists cradling this new you know, ferret. Or, or you read about the this, and I write about this in the book, the cultured meat phenomenon and how for the first time a, Singapore is the first country to allow the sale of, of test tube you know grown uh, meat that, that is cells grafted from a living you know chicken or cow um, and then turned into hamburgers and chicken nuggets and all the rest. And so we encounter these things all the time in the culture and, and in our daily lives and I think that makes us uneasy, but we don't really ever dwell on them. We kind of move right past, and this book is my effort to dwell on that. You know what makes these things creepy? Why is it uncanny? And should they be? And 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 how do we? How how are we going to wrap our, our heads around these, the science fiction future that we we're now inhabiting? And how are we going to bring into this future all of the things that we love about the past, or recreate the things that we that we feel that we've lost?
2: What follows are stories from people who ask difficult questions about what it means to live in an era of terrible responsibility. Why is it terrible? By the way,
1: terrible in the sense of enormous, and in the sense of causing great personal sense of, of personal responsibility. I mean, you know, we know. I mean, to take the climate problem, we know that that through our our actions every day, we're we're feeding into this 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 terrible accumulation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and that environmental problems of our time are not sort of secluded to some poisoning of someone's drinking water, or drilling in some protected public land. Although, of course, that stuff is happening too, but it's involving all of us that we're all are forced into a kind of a feeling of complicitness with these global environmental problems. And and I think that in order to, I think it forces one to feel that if, if you're sort of a thinking person in this world, that that one has to take responsibility to improve our position. It doesn't mean that. We all have to necessarily become, you know, Greenpeace activists or, or run for office, but that, um, that these are the defining crises of our time and that we have an obligation if we're going to be part of, of a civil society to do our part to try to resist the worst case scenarios. And, and so that's the idea that I'm, I'm trying to get at. And, and, you know, I think you could say the same thing about the responsibility of fighting racial injustice. Um, for instance, in this country, and a number of other social problems. Um, but there, there are certain problems that rise to the degree of, of moral crises that, as a result, involve all of us, whether or not we, we want to, to be you know foot soldiers in a fight or not.
2: Well, let's go to a community that found themselves in this fight rather unwittingly. In your book, you have a chapter called Here Comes the Warm Jets, which opens in Porter Ranch near Aliso Canyon. Why don't you set the scene?
1: It's the neighborhood that is probably best known as being where they shot E.T. So you can sort of picture it perfectly from the scenes where they're, um, you know, biking through the suburban neighborhood. It's a it's a it's a pretty affluent suburban feeling um, neighborhood at the northern edge of Los Angeles and and. It was the site, although this is not really known outside of probably Southern California, really, or for people who are f- following environmental stories. It was the site of one of the worst climate disasters uh, of, our, of our time, which is that the, the canyon inside this giant, these mountains, the Santa Susana Mountains, had been hollowed out by oil drillers over, over many decades. And after it was, all the oil was sucked out, it was used to hold natural gas that they pumped in. Um, as storage for you know, and the gas would go into pipes all through los angeles to to people's stoves and and so on, and there was all of these wells inside the mountain, and one of the wells basically sprung a lake a leak, and uh, gas started rushing out and it soon became clear that it was rushing out so fast that the amount of of uh, greenhouse gas emissions um, went well beyond like the entire Los Angeles, you know, basin and, and um, was one of the leading sources of greenhouse gas emissions in, in the world um, while the leak was going on, which was several months before they could cap it. It was sort of like an above ground deep water horizon situation, except it was invisible and nobody would really be aware of it if it weren't for, you know, infrared cameras capturing the plume so the the crisis began with first a bunch of neighbors smelling gas the way you would in any kind of of gas leak. And there uh, followed this a total panic in the community as everybody started to not everybody, but a lot of people in the community started to to freak out and worry that they were being poisoned by the the gas that was spewing out of the of the cannon. And what and then what followed is a kind of case study of public hysteria. As there was a huge, huge debates locally about whether or not the gas was even drifting over the town, whether people were getting s- poisoned or even if, you know, the feelings of th- that people were sick was even, um, it, you know, people really even were getting sick. And and so you had this for months and it's really still continuing. There's still litigation and going on about it um, where the whole community sort of started to tear itself apart. Um it became a kind of moral play about, you know, who not only who's to blame and, and who's at fault, but also are people overdoing it? You know, who's paying the price? And to what degree is it even happening?
2: You can kind of imagine the scene as law firms descend this small town and they all sort of offer the, the promise of a settlement. Some people don't experience the gas affecting them. Some people don't even smell it. Some can't seemingly leave their house without being affected by it.
1: That's the most striking thing about the story is that everybody, you know, to some people, it's Chernobyl and literally a Chernobyl survivor says this is who, who had, an emigre said this is worse than Chernobyl. I I experienced Chernobyl in the, in the Ukraine. Um, and to other people, they just sort of shake their heads and say, our neighbors are crazy. Um, yeah. And Aaron Brockovich herself shows up, you know, hired by one of the law firms to, to get clients for their class action suit. But that's the most amazing thing about it is that, the entire focus of everybody in the community was on the health of the community, which, which makes sense. Um, they're worried if they're going to get sick or, you know, in some cases if their property values are going to drop, but nobody cared, nobody there had any interest or really curiosity about the climate change ramifications. And of course, the question of whether did this gas cause health problems is somewhat in dispute. And that's what all this, these lawsuits are about. Or how many people were actually affected is in dispute. Certainly, what's not in dispute is that a massive amount of of you know carbon dioxide or methane went went into the atmosphere. That was more you know a greater amount of of greenhouse gas produced by this single gas leak than you know I have a list of like you know fifty countries in the world for their whole year. I think it's about a Lebanon's worth of emissions went up out of this one leak, and and that's what people have a really hard time talking about because in a world of however many gigatons of of you know carbon emissions every year what's another aliso canyon leak it's very hard to you know certainly to visualize it but even to kind of intellectualize it it just seems so ephemeral but that is more than anything was was the greatest damage and it was the one thing that nobody could could talk about because nobody has the language to talk about something that abstract really so
2: as we said you had one neighbor experiencing the effects of methane, the next door neighbor potentially not at all. And you wrote about this uh, in a term that I I don't want to botch, so I'm going to have you say it.
1: So somaticization? I yeah. Right. That is now you're I'm causing saying. me to question. Okay, yeah. That's great. Well, it's right. It's it's the newest <laughs> word for what traditionally was called hysteria or you know paranoia. <laughs> And this is something that I think about. Oh, I've thought about over and over again during COVID, which is that in a lot of environmental disasters, um, the symptoms of the actual exposure to the, um, you know, the toxin are the same as the symptoms of the anxiety, one's anxiety of getting exposed. (laughs) In other words, the people who actually, you know, felt like they inhaled a lot of gas would complain of, Headaches, memory problems, trouble sleeping, fatigue, all the rest. And the people who were anxious about being exposed to the gas would have the same symptoms. The fear made them sick. The fear made them sick. And the fear, in fact, has the same symptoms. And it's very hard to distinguish basically between who really was exposed and who was simply worried about getting exposed. And I I feel like I've experienced that in COVID. I mean, the number of times my wife or I thought we had got COVID, for instance because we were feeling like, you know, of course it's absurd on some level, but, but yeah, when you, when you start to feel tired or you have, you know, you start coughing, you can't sleep, you have a, he- a terrible headache. A lot of the times we'd have to say, no, we're just, we're anxious. <laughs> we're suffering from, this is anxiety. You know, it's not because we're, we have a virus. Um, and so there, at least you can get a COVID test, but you can't get a exposure to natural gas test.
2: you right. If the smell of gas makes one person dizzy, while the neighbor next door can't smell a thing, is one of them lying? And that disconnect between two different realities. I don't know, it started to sound a lot like some of the pandemic philosophies promoted in the last year.
1: It's true that every disasters reveal who we are. The way we respond to disasters reveals something about who we are, and and that's in many ways the subject of, of of the book is that you know we're living in this slow motion disaster of of environmental destruction, and it's revealing something about who we are, both as a society and also as as individuals. And I think the stories in the book are are about people who brush up against disaster in really dramatic ways and are forced to reconsider some sort of basic under their basic assumptions about who they are and and the world that they they live in and it's always very you know it's it's destabilizing when when you have some kind of encounter like that but it's also clarifying i think it brings about a certain kind of enlightenment for better or worse and and i found in the, my reporting i kept encountering people who were having those kinds of turning points in in their own lives well let's go to one of those
2: people uh, in the chapter immortal jellyfish which you told me is your favorite story in this book. Why don't you set the scene for this one?
1: This was just the, one of the most delightful <laughs> experiences of my life was encountering this this wonderful man, Shin Kubota, who's a marine biologist in Shirahama, Japan, which is like a small coastal town. I think the closest thing is like maybe like, you know, the shore of Delaware or something. And there's a, there's a marine biology lab there where he works and he had become obsessed with this very peculiar species of hydrozoan it's not even technically a jellyfish but it's called the immortal jellyfish which it was discovered in only in recent decades under perfect conditions meaning you know if no other animal eats it or stomps on it uh, it can live forever it goes through the various phases of the life cycle and then repeats goes back to back to the beginning and and you know they call it the benjamin button jellyfish and most scientists that have, you know, studied it think of it as a kind of curiosity or, or judge its immortality to be not really immortal on a technicality and that it just keeps regenerating itself rather than living in a, in a steady state forever. But, but not Shin Kubota, who became obsessed with the species and believed that it carried the secret to immortal life, literally the genetic secret to immortal life. And he hoped that by studying it, he could make human beings immortal, and he de- he devoted his life to this. And so, when I learned about him, I knew that I had to to meet him, and and I was able, fortunately, to go to Japan and spend a lot of time with him in his lab and enter his world. And it was a very rich, rich one, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah.
2: Well, I, I think it's important to note this is a man who is at once melancholic and joyous, almost in the same instant he works in an office full of clutter and nonsense and and you paint the picture so vividly of a man who believes that this immortal jellyfish can be translated into immortality for you and i
1: the most dramatic thing about it is that at a certain point he comes to this realization that human beings are not actually ready for immortality And he said, when he said that to me for the first time, I I, I assumed he meant, well, you know, we haven't perfected the genetic engineer, you know, we're not at a level of, of, of sophistication with our, with the the scientific techniques to be able to really implant the same genetic, you know, properties into the human genome and so on. He said, no, no, no. I mean, we're not spiritually ready (laughs) that we, we need to become better Appreciators of, of the natural world and, and more respectful of the you know, harmonies of, of nature before we can promote ourselves to immortality. He he sincerely believes that it, it will be possible. And I should say there are geneticists who are studying the species for this purpose, besides him. But he sees it as his goal uh, in the meantime to try to engender a greater appreciation for, for the natural world in in everybody. And so he has this whole alter personality where he's Mr. Immortal Jellyfish Man, where he he dresses up in a jellyfish costume and goes around mainly to schools, but also on national TV there. He's something like a you know, Bill Nye of Japan, dressed up as the jellyfish, and he sings songs that he's written that are ballads to immortality and to the natural world. Like a lot of, you know, dreamer type personalities, he has, there is this undercurrent of, of melancholy and sadness. And I think, you know, a feeling that not enough people share his, you know, idealistic views about nature and about, you know, how human beings should behave in the world. And I found it very, very moving, um, because it, he ultimately comes back, you know, from the far reaches of this, fantasy of immortality and, and of, of scientific progress, he comes back to a really, um, a place of nostalgia and really kind of spiritualism where, which sort of brings us back to the beginning of the conservation, uh, way of thinking into the middle, middle of the 19th century, which is that, you know, we don't, we don't respect the world that we've been given, the wonders, the wonders and the beauty that we've been given and that we're not, we're not deserving, you know, that we, we haven't, we haven't done our part that we've, we're not deserving of um, basically the greatest gifts of, of the technology because we are, we're spoiling the beauty that we, um, that was our birthright. And I found that very moving. And and I was also very moved by his incredible efforts just to, to spread this message through, through song, through karaoke, through uh, visits to schools. And I, and I found that he was never, happier than in the moments when he was interacting with other people, with young people or people on tours of the, of the aquarium that's attached to the lab. Um, when he was getting out this gospel as a kind of a nature gospel that he really became, uh, you know, his truest, his truest self.
2: Did he change how you approach some of these issues? I mean, did he make you feel like maybe this, this immortality is possible?
1: Yes, I I went from thinking that this is completely ridiculous to thinking, well, he might be onto something in terms of the the science. Possibly, Um, his intuition has been buoyed like over the years by some studies that have been done by geneticists about the species. But yes, I think it's pretty far fetched. On the other hand, the stuff that's going on with genetic engineering now is is completely far fetched and it's real. Um, (laughs) We're creating you know new species all the time, transgenic species. So we're already into passed way out into the frontier, so I'd sort of I would buy it if they, <laughs> to some extent um although of course the kind of immortality we wouldn't want that kind of immortality where we devour ourselves and become babies again. but the conversations with him really did inform my thinking about some of these larger ideas that um became the book. He was able to articulate some of this sense of i think anxiety and uneasiness that we feel with some of even the greatest technical technological advances that were we're now enjoying is that when you give a, a child weapon or a tool that's a little bit too advanced for their age, and you I feel like that's where we are as a species. We have some really powerful tools and we, you know, have some good ideas about, you know, how to use them, but we're kind of into uncharted. There's not really any rules. Like we don't have the, the instruction manual. No one's really taught us The things you should do and the mistakes you can make were kind of just still in our reckless phase. And I think that that can be a little bit terrifying. And so he helped identify for for me the source of some of this this uneasiness and, and uncanniness that we experience nowadays.
2: I wonder, is one of the purposes of writing this book your own way of sorting out the uneasiness you feel about this kind of looming crisis?
1: Oh yeah. And that's true of really anything I write is I, if I have some clear point of view, it's not going to really interest me to, to write about it or explore it. I, I, I'm drawn to things that make me uncomfortable and make me uneasy. And, and I think that's, that was really the guiding, you know, more than any kind of intellectual justification for any of the stories in the, in the book, they all came out of the the real litmus test for me was, does this story make me feel a little uncomfortable? (laughs) And, and usually it was for reasons I couldn't articulate you know, at the outset and it was only in the process of writing it that you're that I'm really able to kind of narrow down. So so that part of the process for me is really rewarding. It's it is, I think, how I think through things. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I, you know, come up with all the answers, but it at least allows me to clarify my thinking or my fears or anxieties about about these things. And yeah and the characters I was drawn to are are people who are going through the same thing basically who are, who are in their own process of of trying to clarify why they feel so you know weirded out i guess
2: <laughs> well you're a father and a husband, and i and I wondered when you're reporting on these pieces from afar and you're having these kind of larger existential conversations that that force you to think of your own mortality. This book kind of does that over and over again. I wonder what it did to you as a as a person, as a father, as a husband, you're calling home, you're trying to write. How do you manage that?
1: If anything, I think being a a, a father of young children has driven me to to try to write about these kinds of stories. To, it's driven me to think about the future in a in a deeper way. The book is dedicated to my youngest son, who was just, you know, born while I was completing it. And, you know, if you have children today in 2021, um, you can't help but be aware of all of the the threat. I mean, every parent is aware of threats facing their children, but, you know, now that we're confronted with these dramatic global Threats and this this knowledge that every year of their lives will be less warm (laughs) than the next, you know, Um, and this time of great rearrangement of of natural orders, it's very unsettling. And yet, I made the decision to have children anyway. I know some people who say they will not have children because they're so worried about climate change or other environmental disasters. But so it does feel very personal, and it and it does. Uh, force a certain level of commitment, I think, to these issues and to at least trying to grapple with them for oneself, if not, you know, storm the barricades. It, at least it forces you to try to get your mind in order about about these things. Mm-hmm. And and that in some ways is what I want to, you know, it's like, how do we incorporate all this knowledge into one's life and not go crazy? Like I've actually succeeded pretty well. I mean, I've, you know, my life, I've, there are certain things I have changed about my life, but, you know, I live in New Orleans to take one obvious example, like a city deeply threatened by rising seas and storms. And so how, you know, how does one live in this city while knowing, you know, being clear minded about the dangers and threats of climate change and sea level rise, etc. And that's really the subject of the story. I mean, of these stories, it's not so much about activists or politicians leading the charge. It's about ordinary people who are forced to deal with these incursions into their daily lives by these um, crazy new realities. And so in, in some ways, it's it's really about people, I think, you know, like you or me or, or you know, people who, who don't devote their lives necessarily to these issues, but find that their basic preconceptions about the world as they knew it are are completely outdated and, and how their personal lives and their private lives adjust. Um, so in some ways, it's really their stories of every everyday life as we live it now more than stories of great devastation or activists. I think there are plenty of people who do good, you know, good writing about those subjects. But I felt what was most interesting to me is, is you know, how do we go on with our, our normal lives while this, this chaos is, is sort of burbling in the, in the background?
2: Kubota writes, Before humans can evolve, they must first learn to love nature. When I was a child, I was surrounded by nature. No longer. We live in a mechanical, technical world. People only know about nature through their computers. Today, the countryside is obsolete. In Japan, it has disappeared. If this continues, nature will die. There are already signs that it is too late. Global warming, overpopulation of the human race, radioactive isotopes found in deep ocean waters, there are unseen chemicals everywhere. To solve this problem, spiritual change is needed. What does that look like?
1: I think I would call it more like a moral change. And what that means is a s- simply, I think, a greater connection with some ideas that are a bit outmoded or seem al- almost antiquated today. But essentially, we're talking about, you know, what the fathers of conservationism, Aldo Leopold, called the land ethic. And, you know, various naturalists have different terms for it. But it's essentially a sense of communion, a sense of, of um, communion with nature, a sense of respect Um, for the, the harmonies of the natural world, a sense that we're part of nature, that we're not, you know, that we've, we've acted like an invading force, but that, uh, that there's this deep interconnectedness. And I think we feel that in our bones. I mean, we feel like we've deranged, you know, through our carelessness, we've deranged the natural order and there's a great desire to, to restore it. And that's, you know, what some of these new technologies are trying to do. Um, but I don't, I think we're doomed to repeat the same mistakes if we don't Bring with it a greater sense of care of 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 uh, stewardship. So you you quickly get back into these very old fashioned ideas and sort of early religious spiritual ideas. I think that's why he, Kubota uses that term. But I think they're they're real, and I don't think they should be outmoded and 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 they shouldn't seem you know anachronistic. And and I think we we do have to return to those ideas. It's that you know te- technology is is itself neutral. It's how we use it. And, and I think in order, you know, our best guide is, is to use it in ways that are consistent with, you know, these fundamental values that we claim to be the basis for our, our, our civilization.
2: You know, before we taped, you and I were emailing a little bit and you told me that this last chapter, the green rabbit best captures the spirit of the book. And I'm curious, what is this story?
1: It's the story of an artist named Eduardo uh, Katz, a Brazilian Chicago artist, who, after a series of, of pretty provocative, um, art projects that involved sort of biology or genetic engineering, created his, his masterwork, which was called GFP Bunny. The bunny was called Alba. And it's a, it's a albino rabbit that was genetically engineered at a French agricultural institute to glow green under certain conditions
2: what were those conditions
1: well (laughs) there's like a lot of riders on the on the yeah on the description it's you basically all of the photographs of alba she's glowing this bright um like a neon green but in fact she did not appear green unless you were under certain ultraviolet light and wearing these yellow glasses that block some of the the spectrum of light and then under those conditions it, it glows bright green in fact. But you wouldn't necessarily know that from the coverage where you would just you saw it globally and headlines all over the, you know, there was this bright green bunny rabbit. And the art project was not just the birth of the of Alba the rabbit, but it was the it was seen as the ensuing debate. You know, he, he had he had this idea that he was going to adopt the bunny, bring it to his house in Chicago, do a lot of press and the debate about the you know, the, the ethics of of the whole thing was contained in the project. And people lost their minds, as could be expected, including the French Institute that provided him the rabbit. Once it started to blow up and become a scandal, they, they didn't want to be associated with it. Um, and most people were outraged that an animal could be used as a art project, that its genes could be manipulated in the service of art. And of course, the great irony was that he didn't really create Anything, the artist, cats, he had just taken a rabbit that had already been engineered that way, um, because th- those rabbits are used and have been used now for decades for testing, if various cures and, and including vaccines. Um, the green gene that, that, which actually comes from a jellyfish, sort of completes the circle. Um, a Pacific, uh, ocean jellyfish makes them green. It, it's used as a biomarker. So you could, you know, measure, You know the interaction of one gene, um, for instance, that's being manipulated through engineering, and so this was actually something that was totally commonplace and and accepted um, by the scientific community, but nobody in the general public really knew about it. So he was he was vilified, but but really he was just bringing to light a scientific reality, and that story, and then it's you know what happens with him, and 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 in in his this this public uh, debate that goes on for years. Felt to me very much a, a kind of parable of, you know, of our time and and to some extent of of the role that art can play to force uh, the general public, um, you know, the non specialists and experts to grapple with some of these um, major transformations that we're now experiencing. And it's really it strikes me as that you know particularly narrative art and, and storytelling, which I think that this artist was engaged in. Uh, is unique in its ability to kind of penetrate into the world and and force people to grapple with, you know, where we are. And so I chose to end the the book with that story because it felt like a perfect encapsulation of what I'm after in in writing the book in the first place.
2: In that first chapter we talked about here comes the warm jets. There are two lines that that I think are sort of buried in there, but to me I was thinking about throughout reading and you write we are a show me species wired to look for visible evidence of invisible harm the impulse can lead a person to blame global warming for a balmy afternoon in february or make a climate change denialist find vindication in a snowstorm the most dangerous threats to our species are precisely those that are most difficult to visualize long-term slow to emerge amorphous. I know you described yourself as vaguely optimistic, but in that line of thinking, where do you see the hope?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'd say first, it, I don't feel like it's for me to tell people to be optim— you know, whether they should be optimistic or pessimistic. And I feel like even for the kind of environmental movement has been mired in this this fruitless debate about, you know, how to get people to act—should we give them hope or give them fear. And this is ultimately, I think, you know, self-defeating. But I, I do feel that this challenge that you mentioned of basically, how do you get people to act collectively when a problem is not visible to them in, in an immediate way? It's one of the hallmarks of the, you know, the climate problem, the climate inaction problem. But I don't think it's insurmountable. I think one of the ways through... Is through kind of moral reckoning that we're now really having for the first time, um, in our culture, which is to focus less on maybe CO2 parts per million and more on the very real manifestations of, of the problem on people's lives. And I think even perhaps as important, the sense of violation that by failing to act, we've violated, um, you know every principle that we claim to to animate us, whether it's a belief in equality or fairness or you know respect or caring for future generations as previous generations cared for us and so on, and and a lot of the principles that are that are fundamental to you know democracies, Western democracies, um, that we are not living up to them if we fail to fight this problem, and so there's a real moral conversation, a moral element, and I and I think one way to get get into that is not through the old activist techniques of, you know, hectoring people or, or forcing people, demanding that people act, although that is still important. Um, but I think there is a greater need for stories that help us, you know, understand these issues in a more complex and personal way. Storytelling is the best way in for people to understand the problem in its full dimensions and, and the ways in which it's you know, not just affecting people who are victims of a wildfire or a flood, but it, it's it's really changing the way we think about the future and the way we think about the strength of our of our culture and our, our civilization in deeply unstable, you know, destabilizing ways. And I, and so I think there's there's great value to that, and I, and I and I think narrative writing is is just important in any society to help people think about how how these great public crises or goings-on touch our own inner lives and shape our lives. So I think that's a valuable act.
2: To that end, would you mind reading from the last couple paragraphs of the book?
1: Uh, Sure. I mean, it'll be a few minutes, but yeah, yeah, I'm happy to do it. Okay. (laughs) Um, So this is, the scientist mentioned is the scientist who became the uh, artist, Eduardo Katz's uh, antagonist, um, his former partner at this French institute where they they bred the rabbit, Alba. In the years following the Alba controversy, Louis-Marie Houdabine gave media training lectures to scientists to help them forestall similar distractions. He hoped to teach other scientists how to make their work more palatable to journalists so as to avoid scaring the public. A consensus on a problem is reached, Houdabin told them, when society stops talking about it. This was only half true. When a new problem emerges, experts in the field develop their own consensus. It takes much longer for the implications of major technological change to be grasped by non-experts. By the time headlines begin to appear, use of the technology has already been widely adopted, its standards of use entrenched. Public outrage was not a response to a new technology. It was an aftershock. Houdabine and his colleagues had made their own peace with the exploitation of transgenic animals decades earlier, but the rest of society had not begun to grapple with the technology's implications when Katz traveled to jouy on joses Katz called his effort to adopt the rabbit, this is from the laboratory, he called the effort free Alba, but she'd already been freed, conceptually if not physically, and it was that freedom and the attention it received that Houdabine resented. Society still has not stopped talking about the ethics of our transgenic future. The conversation has barely even started. Bio-artists borrowed one of science fiction's oldest tricks. They extrapolated the present state of science into a speculative future that has already adjusted to it. Imagine, they asked, what it will be like when chimerical, glow-in-the-dark pets are commonplace, when bodies can be cultivated like gardens, when pigs have wings— But their art, like science fiction, was not prophecy. It could not be. The artist could only respond to a reality that had already arrived. Their creations lagged the science and could never hope to catch up. This lag doesn't reflect an artistic failure. The lag gives art its highest meaning. It's in the awkward, painful period between the emergence of a new world and our realization that we already inhabit it, that imaginative art is most desperately needed. Enlightenment lies not in renouncing reality, but in seeing it more clearly. Art, even flawed art, helps us to understand our own place in an unfamiliar landscape. It gives language to our most inchoate terrors and desires. It shows us how the soul is worked on by an age of radical upheaval, and how the soul must respond.
2: I wanted to say, great art, even flawed art, helps us to understand our own place in an unfamiliar landscape. And uh, I think your book does just that. So Nathaniel Rich, thank you very much for your time as always.
1: Thank you. Great to talk to you, Sam. I appreciate it. Stay safe. You too.
2: Show. Special thanks today to Nathaniel Rich. His new book, Second Nature Scenes from a World Remade, is available wherever you get your books. To learn more about Nathaniel and his work, visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. If you'd like to hear more conversations with writers and journalists, I'd recommend our talks with George Saunders, Claudia Rankin, Wesley Morris, Gloria Steinem. Miranda July and Fran Leipowitz. You can find all of those and more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And as always, our show is made possible by our incredible team. They include executive producer Janixa Bravo, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, associate producer is Nikki Spina, our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our assistant editors are Joshua Siegel, Kevin Kaur, and Clarice Guevara. Music by Dylan Peck. Our interns are Caitlin Dryden, Claire Hardwick, Jillie Harold, Patrice Lee, and Grace Perkins. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Huang, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. And finally, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back on Sunday with a very special episode. Until then, stay safe, and so long.